I love how Dana uh, prayed for the fantastic finance teams since his wife is on that team and is one of the volunteers, right? So thanks, Dana, for leading us in prayer. And uh, man, powerful worship this morning. So grateful to be able to sing with you. I wish all of you guys could just hear it from the front row. All your voices just powering behind us. It's awesome. So anyways, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, uh, that's where we're going to be today. As you're turning there, I just want to say a few things. If you're, if you're new with us today, just want to, again, extend a warm welcome to you. We are so glad that you're here. We love it having new people join us each and every Sunday. Uh, for those of you who are not new here, your members here, just a reminder that today is the last day to turn in your nominations for elder and uh, deacon officers. Um, I was, I have to admit, I was checking the number of nominations that had come in so far this morning. I was surprised at how few had been turned in. So I just want to use this moment to encourage you, if you are a, a member of our church, to check your email. Last Sunday after the services, we emailed you the nomination form. And if you could just put it on your calendar as a reminder or something to do that today, uh, the form will close at midnight tonight. So make sure that you're praying and, and following as the Lord leads there. Uh, speaking of leaders in our church and the future leaders of our church, um, I have a couple staffing updates that I want to share with you right from the start today. Uh, no, don't worry, nobody's resigning today that I know of, uh, so we don't have to worry about announcing that. But um, we have had a couple search committees in place for a couple new staff members we've been looking for. We've been um, looking for our pastor of prayer and community life, as well as a pastor of new connections. And as these committees have worked with our staff and with our elders assessed multiple candidates. We've sensed the Lord calling us to take a little bit of a different direction. And so this new direction kind of includes a blending of these two positions and maybe a new opportunity as well. And so since this is different than what we had previously communicated to the church, I want to give you um, an opportunity to hear more about this and the future direction and get your questions answered and um, feel very informed moving forward. So here's some of the next steps we're going to take uh, regarding our future staffing. On February 5th, um, next Sunday night, we're going to host a one-hour town hall staffing update meeting. Um, we're going to explain the what of the new role. We're going to introduce the who, the candidate that we um, believe the Lord has brought to us to fill this new role, uh, why we sense that moving this direction is good for our church, and then how we want to proceed moving forward. So that will be here in the sanctuary, February 5th, 6.30 p.m. Uh, we hope that you'll come. Then on uh, the following weekend, Saturday, February the 11th, we will have a time for you to do uh, a Q&A with our candidate for this new role. Um, since this person is being hired in as a pastor or elder for our church, we want to give the church the opportunity to come and ask anything that you want to ask uh, and be able to spend that time interacting with them. And then um, the next day, February 12th, that candidate will preach in our Sunday services. And then the following weekend, February 19th, that's when we're going to have our members meeting. So please note that we're shifting that February members meeting from February the 12th. We're going to push it back one week to the 19th. Um, and at that meeting is when you'll have the opportunity to vote on this new candidate for this um, somewhat tweaked new role that we have here. So since this is a pastor elder position, I, I really want you to pray, pray about this. Come to these things if you can. Um, because these are the next steps that we're going to be taking for this important role for the future of our church. And so we thought it was important to update you guys ASAP. All that being covered, uh, let's get into the book of Acts for today. Acts, you know, this is our 39th study in the book of Acts. Uh, it's been a joy walking through this with you. But in case you're new with us today, um, 
you know, you're walking right into uh, our sermon here on the 17th chapter, which obviously means there's 16 chapters worth of story leading up to this. A lot of history here. So let me succinctly, briefly share with you the high-level summary of what leads us into Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He pulls his apostles together. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to give you power to go out in the world, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. And that little instruction serves as an outline for the book of Acts for us. So Acts chapter 2 through 7 are all about the apostles' ministry in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 are about their ministry in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 13 and following are about the apostles going out into the Gentile world, taking the gospel to the end of the earth. So Acts chapter 13 and 14 are about the apostle Paul's first missionary journey where he traveled with a man named Barnabas, preaching the gospel, seeing many people become saved and believe in Jesus Christ. Churches are started on that particular journey. Then they return home. Acts chapter 15 is about this big debate that happened among Christians uh, in the first century church. It's called the Jerusalem Council. You can read about it on your own time. Um, But then we get into Acts chapter 16, and this is where Paul's second missionary journey takes place. This time, he does not travel with his friend Barnabas. He actually takes a new traveling missionary partner with him named Silas, and they head out on the second missionary journey. And so last week, we um, covered Acts chapter 16, and so today we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17. We're going to work our way from verse 1 through verse 9, drawing several teaching points along the way as we work through those verses. I want to end with some personal takeaways for us that all tie into the big idea from these nine verses. And the main idea from these nine verses is this. It's that God's call on your life, like following God's call on your life could be more difficult, but also more fruitful than you can imagine. God's call on your life could be more difficult, but it could also be more fruitful than what you might expect or imagine. So that being said, let's see how this idea comes to light as we look at verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 17. Pick up in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis uh, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So pause right there. Let's get our bearings like always. Where is all this taking place? Um, If you remember last week, we saw how Paul's missionary journey had taken him from the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea all the way over to Uh, the really the continent of Europe, right? They started out in Antioch of Syria. Uh, They went north and then west into the cities of Lystra and Derbe. That's where they picked up Timothy. Uh, As Timothy joined them, then they continued on west over to um, Troas. Uh, After being in Troas, the Lord called them to cross the Aegean Sea, go and preach the gospel in Macedonia, specifically the city of Philippi. And while they were there in Philippi, God did a mighty work. A lady named Lydia believed the gospel. Her whole household believed, and then they were baptized. Um, Paul cast out a demon from a a demonically oppressed girl. We saw that last week. We saw how um, God miraculously worked while Paul and Silas were in jail, and uh, God saved a suicidal jailer, and his whole family believed and was saved. And so the Lord started a church there in Philippi. you know, they were asked to leave town. And so today, as we pick up in Acts chapter 17, Paul and his missionary friends have moved south down the western side of the Aegean Sea, and they've made their way into Thessalonica. 
right? So you can kind of see where those arrows end on the map in front of me. Here's the thing. You know how far away Thessalonica was from their starting point? Like if you just traveled that route, you know how many miles that is? That's just over a thousand miles away. That's a long ways to travel. You know, uh, I did a little Google Earth search today. You know if you just went in a thousand, just over a thousand miles straight south, you know where you'd be? Cuba. Right? That's a long ways. If you went a thousand miles to the west and just went that way, you know what's just over a thousand miles to the west? Denver. Right? So we're talking a long distance that they had traveled, not by car, not by airplane, right? They're traveling on foot or by an animal or by boat, right? So that's a long way. My simple point is this. God called them to go far for his namesake, all the way to Thessalonica. They went a long ways. And when they get to Thessalonica, things are different than Philippi. If you remember in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue there, and that's why um, Lydia and her Jewish friends started to gather down uh, by the river for prayer. And so, uh, but here, as we get into Thessalonica, there was a synagogue. And so Paul and his traveling missionary friends, they go into the synagogue and they're getting ready. They're looking for an opportunity to preach the gospel. So look at verse two. Verse two says, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath day, he's, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Right? So you can imagine Paul doing this, right? Remember, part of Paul's background is that he was trained as a Jew, a Jewish rabbi. He was a leader in the Jewish community before becoming a converted follower of Jesus Christ, right? And so he was well-educated in the Jewish community. He could go into synagogues, um, you know, and really kind of be able to go back and forth with, you know, very thorough understanding of the Jewish scriptures. And so he does that here. He goes into this synagogue in Thessalonica where there are Jews and um, God-fearing Greeks. And once he's there, he begins reasoning with them. And it says that he's reasoning with them about Jesus. He's explaining to them that Jesus is the Christ. Now, again, um, I've said this before. I, I really don't mean it as a joke, but I think sometimes we have to address this type of thing given the culture we're in. Jesus's last name is not Christ, okay? Christ is not Jesus's last name. Christ is a title, actually. And so, you know, maybe the best way that we could say it is that Jesus is the Christ. It's his title. In the Jewish culture, the word Christ would have meant anointed one or uh, what we would now call the Messiah, right? So Paul is reasoning with them that Jesus is the anointed Messiah sent from God, the one that they've been waiting for. And you can see that Paul is doing this. He's showing them this using their own scriptures. And again, keeping things in mind, like in the Jewish culture of that day, they didn't have the 66 books of the Bible like we have, right? The New Testament uh, letters hadn't yet been combined and put into the canon of scripture. So what is Paul doing? He's taking the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and he's pointing things out from the Old Testament Jewish scriptures saying, look, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Let me show you how this was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. So I can imagine him getting out the Jewish scriptures and saying, okay, see here how Moses said that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham? Well, my friend Luke here, who's traveling with me on this journey, he has done a whole genealogical study that shows Jesus's family lineage, right? From, from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And you can read about that in our New Testament Bible now in Luke chapter 3. But I see, I can imagine Paul saying, no, look at these Old Testament scriptures. See how Isaiah said he'd be born, born of a virgin? Let me tell you about Mary. 
See how the prophet Micah said that Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem? Let me tell you about Mary's travels there. See how Isaiah also said that before the Messiah came, someone would come and prepare the way? Well, let's talk about, you know, Mary's sister Elizabeth and her son John. See how the Jewish prophet Zechariah said that your Messiah would come riding on a donkey? Let me tell you about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. See how Isaiah said he would suffer for sinners? He would be beaten? Let me tell you about how Jesus died on the cross. See how your your prophet uh, Zechariah also told you about how he would be be, uh, betrayed for silver? Let me tell you about a man named Judas. I can imagine Paul saying, look, Even David, look in the scriptures and see, David actually said that he would not be abandoned to the grave. Let me tell you about what happened three days after Jesus' crucifixion. So I can imagine Paul getting out his Bible, pointing to all these Old Testament prophets and prophecies about Jesus, and then showing them who Jesus was, how he fulfilled the scriptures, how he was crucified, buried, and then risen again. And he reasoned with them about Jesus, doing so from the scriptures. And verse 2 says that he did this for three Sabbath days. All right, so three Sabbath days, he goes in, he interacts with the Jews, the God-fearing Greeks, they get the scripture out, they're going through all this together. You might think to yourself, man, only three Sabbath days? Like, why stay so short of a time? Why not longer? If you read Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church in our New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, you can see that once again, Paul got ran out of of the city by an angry mob, right? So he could only stay for a short time. But the results were amazing. Like, look at, look at some of these results here in Acts 17, verse 4. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. All right, so I guess what I want you to see right here is that here in Thessalonica, a good group of people were persuaded by Paul's message. And again, the tactic that Paul used was to appeal to them from the scriptures. It's important for us to remember right here that he's dealing with Jews, with God-fearing Greeks, who would have had the presupposition that scripture has come from God, it's authoritative. So now Paul opens what they understand to be the authoritative scripture and shows them how Jesus is the Christ. I point that out because later on in Acts chapter 17, when we get to this in a couple weeks, we're going to see that Paul goes into the city of Athens A whole group of people who don't share his understanding of the authority of Jewish scripture. And he takes a little bit of a different approach in initially trying to open the door toward the gospel with them. And so we're going to get to that as we see that in a couple weeks. But here he appeals from scripture. Many people believe. um, It says not a few of the leading women. So many women believed. And God continues to grow the church and bring fruit from the ministry of Paul and his companions, even though it was hard for them along the way. More fruit than they can imagine. More fruit. Over the course of this three-week period, he's there. Many people believe. Now, in typical fashion, after the gospel is preached, after people are reached, of course, once again, the Jewish religious leaders get mad and they cause trouble. So look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous, And taking some wicked men of the rabble, which I think is a great phrase, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. All right, so isn't it interesting right here? The Jews get jealous. 
And these are the same Jews who claim to follow God. They're all about righteousness, you know. And yet, who do they go and they work with here? Men of the rabble, wicked men, right? They set the city in an uproar. Um, you ever heard the term uh, rabble rouser? Like when I was growing up, you know, in my conservative, independent, fundamentalist, Baptist upbringing, whenever the kids would get in trouble at church, you know, we would always get called the rabble rousers, right? You know, uh, you know what rabble rouser, here's the way, here's what rabble rouser means. The rabble, um, the rabble are people who live usually on the outskirts of the city. They're, it's kind of, it was a common first century term for people who were sketchy. They were troublemakers. Um, and so a rabble rouser is someone who goes and finds the sketchy troublemaking people and gets them all fired up and worked up. And then they go cause a big riot or a big stir somewhere, right? So here the rabble rousers are stirring up the city of Thessalonica, and they attack and they ransack really the house of a man named Jason because they thought Jason was uh, housing Paul and his missionary friends were there. So look at verse six. We'll see what happens. Verse six says, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, right? So remember, at that time, people in the um, Roman Empire all had to declare, Caesar is Lord. And now these preachers like Paul, they're coming in and being accused of saying, no, these guys are no longer saying Caesar is Lord. They're teaching people that Jesus is Lord. And verse 8 says, and the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So again, we get introduced to Jason. Paul and his friends Stayed at his house, but when the group came to find them, they had already left. So when the apostles aren't there, they pull Jason out to the public square. And when they're out in the square, you know, they, they start to talk about Paul and his apostle friends. And, and it says that the mob cried out, these men have turned the world upside down. Isn't it interesting? Like we use that phrase now, like that's a positive thing for Christians. We want to turn the world upside down. But here, these men were saying it in like a negative way. They're like, these men have come and messed up our regular world. They have caused problems in the way things normally are, right? And so here's the thing. Although they meant it kind of as a negative thing about, you know, Paul and Silas and his friends, like we know that that's a positive thing, right? We understand that under the authority of Jesus, the world does indeed get turned upside down, right? Because what if I can say it this way, what, what God says is right side up, of course the world is going to say is upside down because God's way is totally different than the world's way. The way of Jesus is opposite from the way of sin. When kingdom principles come to bear, when, when God's kingdom principles come to bear on a culture, things change. God's kingdom flips the world upside down. In God's kingdom, to be rich, you got to be generous. In God's kingdom, to live is to die. In God's kingdom, to be a leader is to be a servant. In God's kingdom, to become the greatest, you become the least. In God's kingdom, instead of hating your enemy, you love them. In God's kingdom, instead of cursing your enemy, you pray for them. In God's kingdom, it's the weakest who become the strongest. It's the foolish who shame the wise. It's the humble who become exalted. God's kingdom totally flips the world upside down. God, here's the question. Has God's kingdom come to you and flipped your world upside down? Has your world been changed? As you've come to follow Jesus, is there any difference between your life and your unbelieving friends who you work with day in and day out? Is there anything different about the way you live? Has God changed you? That's the question. Because when you're a believer, 
Your life changes. It goes upside down. You used to live for yourself. Now you live for God. You used to live your way. Now your desire is to live God's way. You used to only really care about your world, your things. Suddenly you care about God's world, his things. You used to care less about, you couldn't care less about the church. Now you start to care very much about the church. You used to not be into scripture. Now you very much care about scripture. This is the type of change that Jesus brings. He turns your world upside down. And when you start to live his way, It'll turn the world around you. It'll turn theirs upside down. It'll disturb things. When you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, things change. And that was certainly the case for these apostles in Thessalonica. They believed in Jesus as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. The people didn't like that. It was messing with their world. So they were disturbed, and here's what they did about it. Look at verse 9. And when they had taken money from Jason as uh, security and the rest, they let them go. Now it says they, they took money from them. You know what that means? This is kind of like a, it's not a bribe. It's more like a bail bond. Okay, it's like this is a fee that Jason and his friends had to pay in order to stay out of jail. Right? And, and um, it's a hardship that they had to, they were kind of being, you know, it was like extortion kind of. They're enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel. And as we read the New Testament, we know that these types of hardships didn't just come on Jason. They actually came to the rest of this new baby, three-week-old church in the city of Thessalonica. And yet they stayed faithful through their hardships. We know this because when Paul would later write his letter to the Thessalonian church, which we now call First Thessalonians, here's what Paul would write to them. He would say, First uh, Thessalonians 1, verse 6 through 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Right? This is how faithful these Thessalonian new baby believers had become. Paul would go travel to different cities, start to preach the gospel and tell them about God's work in Macedonia, Thessalonica, and people would say, oh yeah, yeah, we already heard about that. They had developed a reputation for suffering faithfully for the sake of the Lord, you know, um, that went beyond just their city. It went out to the regions. It became known everywhere, right? The scripture says, think about this. It's even becoming known here still today, 2,000 years later. Here we are, like preaching to you, telling you the story of what happened with the Thessalonican believers um, there in the first century. Their faithfulness is becoming known to you, to me, even to us today. So what are the takeaways? What do we learn from these nine verses? What's the big thoughts here, right? So what I really want to do is speak to those of you who are believers first, okay? And what are the principles that we can glean? Here's the first one. If God is calling you to go far or move on from where you are, then say yes. Say yes. If God is calling you to go far, right? Paul and Timothy, Silas, they were a thousand miles away from where they started. So if God is calling you to go far for the sake of the gospel, do it. Some of you maybe called to go on a short-term mission trip sometime. You guys know we have seven people from our church right now on a short-term mission trip in Togo. Some of the adults on that trip have never been outside of the country. There are two teenagers on that trip. 
the Lord may call some of you to go on a short-term mission trip. I'm excited because this year uh, we've got several mission trips in the queue for the church to participate in. I just wanted to introduce some of these to you. In, in March and April, we're going to be taking medical trips to Paraguay, um, doing medical mission work. In June, we're sending a team to Uganda. We're going to be serving and evangelizing and discipling Sudanese refugees. Uh, in July, we're going to send team to Bosnia, assisting some of the local missionaries there with a children's camp, as well as doing some other strengthening of the believers that are in um, the area, that particular part of Bosnia. In, in August and October, we're going to send a team to Argentina to partner with a pastor in that area who travels to nearby regions, preaches the gospel to people who have never heard of Jesus before, right? These are just a few of the plans that we already have in place. We're going to keep sharing more about these opportunities as the plans solidify, but I'm asking you to open up your heart. Just say, God, are you calling me to go far? You calling me to go on a short-term mission trip? If he says yes, then go. Some of you might be, this may not be a short-term call. It may be a long-term call. Some of you, the Lord may say, you know what? I'm calling you to go to the mission field. I mentioned our team that's in Togo right now. Our team, our short-term team is in Togo serving alongside a long-term missionary family who just seven years or so ago were regular members of UBC, just like you. They were here coming to church in and out each Sunday, yet the Lord called them to leave and go become long-term missionaries. And so they did. So whether God's call for you is short-term or long-term. If he's calling you to go far, then go far. If he's, here's the thing also. If he's calling you to move on, then move on from where you are. Uh, I know that sounds kind of bad from a pastor. Like, hey, if God's calling you to move on, you're like, move along, get out of here. I don't, that's not really what I mean. I, I just, what I mean is that sometimes God calls us to something and we think it's going to be the long-term thing, but then it's a short-term thing because he gives us our next assignment. Paul got brought to Thessalonica. I can't imagine he thought to himself, well, you know, I'm probably just going to be here three weeks and then move on to the next city. But yet God's perfect plan was for him to be there a short time and then moved him on. And some of you may have followed the Lord's lead. He's got you where you are right now. In your mind, your five-year plan, your little way you have it lined out, you thought you might be where, you're, where you are right now for the long term. But really, God is already nudging you saying, nope, I've got your next assignment. It's time for you to go. It's time for you to go do this new ministry. It's time for you to serve in a new way. It's time for you to live in a new city. It's time for you to take a new job or a new career, no matter what it is. If God is calling you to go far or to move on from where you are right now, say yes. Say yes. Second takeaway for those of us who do know the Lord and are trying to follow his call, remember, following his call could be more difficult or more fruitful than you'd ever expect. Following his call could be both more difficult and more fruitful than you'd ever expect. Paul and his friends were here in Thessalonica. The road to Thessalonica was difficult. Once they got in Thessalonica, it was difficult again. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have troubles. Either we're going to believe Jesus or not, right? Sometimes we go through seasons where, you know what, this uh, following Jesus is is, seems to be trouble-free. It's easy. In those moments, that's a grace and a kindness from God, and we thank the Lord for those times. But we shouldn't expect it to stay that way from ever, forever. When we're following God's will, sometimes there will be hardships and difficulties along the way. 
It was difficult for Paul in Lystra. He was almost stoned to death there. It was difficult for Paul in Troas. He didn't know what was coming next. He was perplexed. Where do you want us to go, Lord? And yet the Lord opened the way. It was difficult for Paul in Silas in Philippi. They got beaten with rods. They got thrown in jail. It was difficult for Paul when he came to Thessalonica. He got you know, um, attacked really by a mob. So when we're following the Lord's will, and then difficulty arises, it's so easy for us to think, oh, this must not be the Lord's will. It got hard. If it was really the Lord's will, then, you know, these troubles wouldn't be coming our way. And I just want to just draw this biblical principle out. Sometimes following God's will will be very hard, very difficult. Trouble could come your way. It could be more difficult than you'd expect. But when you're following God's will, it could also be more fruitful than you'd ever expect. Isn't that what happened here? Everywhere Paul would go, these troubles would come, hardship would come, yet believers would come to believe, people would come to believe the gospel. Churches would be started. It's amazing to me. Think about Thessalonica. Paul was there for three weeks, man. That is such a short amount of time. They hear the gospel, they believe, they've got Paul teaching them for three weeks, and then he gets run out of town. And somehow, some way, God made that church so faithful that our Bible refers to the Thessalonian church as being exemplary for all the other believers in the regions around them. God can do more than we expect, even in such a short amount of time. So God may call you far, he may move you on, and it may be more difficult than you expected, but your obedience could also be far more fruitful than you expected. Here's the thing. This all presumes that you've believed the gospel, that you want to follow Jesus, that you want to obey God's call. But we won't go anywhere that God is calling. We won't endure hardship like Jesus if we don't know Jesus ourselves. If you haven't believed the gospel, this is where it's got to start. So my third appeal, third takeaway to you guys is this. Believe in the Jesus of Scripture. Believe in the Jesus of Scripture We saw in our text today that Paul took the time to reason with them from Scripture that Jesus was the Christ. That's because Paul knew that Scripture represented God's thoughts on things, God's word of truth. And I think most of us in this room today are here sitting quietly listening to a sermon because deep in our hearts, we know that the Scripture contains God's word, that we believe that it's authoritative I I think that most of us are here because we understand that human thinking is not the final authority about Jesus. That we understand that our human reason is faulty and limited and biased. And we know that if our judgment is based off our own feelings or experiences, and we simply try to draw conclusions about Jesus based off our limited knowledge and understanding, we're going to draw wrong conclusions about him. So, We listen to Scripture. Why? Because Scripture doesn't get things wrong about Jesus because Scripture is breathed out by God. God is not faulty in his understanding. God is not limited in his knowledge. There is no error in his judgments. Therefore, if you want to know the truth about Jesus, then you must look to Scripture. And here's here's what Scripture teaches us about Jesus. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is God's only begotten Son. Scripture teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. 
Scripture teaches that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Scripture teaches that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Scripture teaches that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Scripture teaches that Jesus is the only way to the Heavenly Father. Scripture teaches that Jesus is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords, and that everyone should bow their knee and open their mouth and confess him as such. Believe in the Jesus of Scripture, not who popular culture surmises he is, not who other people just kind of tell you their own thoughts about him. Don't just have your own experiences in life and try to like come up with your own experiences and figure out who Jesus is. Believe in the Jesus of Scripture. And when you do, you will believe the truth. And so today as we close our service, those of us who have believed in the Jesus of Scripture, we're going to remember that Jesus by coming to the Lord's table and taking the Lord's Supper together.